Hello and welcome. My name is Nicholas Ward and this is Historical Hysteria. Today we are journeying back to the groovy 60s to explore a war won on the heels of cardboard shoes. Stepping from our time machine, we find ourselves on the arid Red Sea coast of Eastern Africa, looking out at blue azure waters and dry endless stretches of beautiful mountain desert. The 60s is known in the West for the summer of love and the gallons of LSD. In Africa, it was the decade of independence. 32 of Africa's 56 countries were founded in the 1960s. It was a time of hope on the continent, but one tiny sliver of land told a different story. And in 1961, in the tiny colony of Eritrea, things were going badly. Eritrea's location on the Red Sea made it valuable for trade, but not much else. And following the scramble for Africa, Eritrea was just kind of left over. So in 1889, when the newly formed Kingdom of Italy was feeling left out of the colonial game, they first bought a parcel of land for a shipping port, then just conquered the country in 1889. The colony would be absorbed into Italian East Africa in 1936 before falling to the British in 1941. Post-war, the colony would remain integrated with Ethiopia, then federated into a single country by negotiations between the UN, the UK, and Ethiopia. But not Eritrea. Though, to address Eritrean concerns, the Federation granted the nation a high degree of autonomy and local elections within the Federated States of Ethiopia and Eritrea. Unfortunately for the Eritreans, they found themselves a small and surprisingly prosperous autonomous democracy within the absolute monarchy of the Empire of Ethiopia under the control of Haile Selassie. Famous for resisting the Italians and ruling one of the only free African states, less famous for genocidal autocracy, and incidentally a messiah-esque figure for Rastafarians. But worse than this, the rebellious Eritreans found themselves in possession of Ethiopia's only access to the sea, within a country that was being wooed by both NATO and the USSR. Yeah, things are about to get dark. And in 1958, in Cairo, Egypt, a handful of young Eritrean students and intellectuals met to form the Eritrean Liberation Front, the ELF, under the leadership of 48-year-old Hamid Idris Awate. Now the ELF were a small, semi-secret society, and in 1961 launched a small and largely inoffensive guerrilla war against Ethiopia. And I'm using the word war here very generously. Hamid Awate was part of Eritrea's Muslim minority, who make up about a third of the country. Born during the Italian colonial period, he was a remarkably competent officer and served with the Italians and was educated in Rome. He briefly led an armed uprising against the British in the late 40s and led and formed the armed wing of the ELF. And on September 1st, 1961, Awate led a force of 11 students to attack an Ethiopian police outpost, firing the first shots of a war which would last 30 years. Now, despite Awate's military laurels, this was a handful of students, not a grand revolution. Unfortunately, Emperor Haile Selassie, who was busy terrorising his opponents, wasn't looking for much of an excuse, and immediately invaded the autonomous region suspending the nation's parliament and occupying its cities. And on the 14th of November 1962, he ended the short-lived facade of federation annexing the region into Ethiopia. 
consequently turning the small and largely inconsequential ELF into a much more powerful group. Awate died May the same year, but went down as the father of Eritrea. Now, in the wake of Awate's death, the ELF found itself heavy on spirit, but small on experience. By this point, the veterans of World War II were rapidly reaching their 40s, and the rebellion was already fracturing along religious, ethnic, and political lines. Now, 1961. The Cold War. You might expect things to go well here for Eritreans. After all, a small group of rebels made up of a bunch of intellectuals fighting NATO-backed overlords. I mean, that is communist bingo. You're going to get yourself some sweet, sweet Soviet money and guns, right? Is what should have happened. Unfortunately, Ethiopia was a wildly unstable state, and the autocratic Haile Selassie was only getting worse. When, in 1958, famine broke out in Tigray, which borders Eritrea and has close ethnic and cultural ties with the area, Selassie sent no food aid, and 100,000 people died. Tigray would go on to be a centre of revolution. Further, Selassie, ruling over a large, multi-religious, multi-ethnic nation, responded to the various desires of his people by outlawing the Oromo language. The Oromo being the country's largest ethnic group, who would go on to become a centre of revolution. And he would go on to persecute various minorities while pursuing an Amhara-first policy the Amhara being an ethnic group who make up about a quarter of Ethiopia's population. You'll never guess which ethnic group Selassie happened to belong to. I know, what a coincidence. All of that is a long way of saying the USSR was much more interested in destabilizing Ethiopia than Eritrea. Now, between 1961 and 1970, the war went slowly and the rapidly deteriorating rebel groups spent more time bickering than fighting. However, in 1970, with the ELF still arguing, a small group split from the ELF to form the EPLF, the Eritrean People's Liberation Front, a Marxist group, led by a small committee, most notably Isaias Afwerki, current leader of Eritrea. Afwerki was born in Asmara, the capital of Eritrea, in 1946. Briefly joining the student radicals in the early 60s, he attended Haile Selassie University in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, before returning to lead the EPLF. Now, now they get the Soviet guns, right? Unfortunately for them, any tacit Soviet support was short-lived, because in 1974, Haile Selassie finally pissed off too many people. Ethiopia's general Aman Adom was quietly minding his own business one day, definitely not planning a coup, when the nation collapsed into nationwide protest. Adom, no doubt surprised, rang up some friends in the military high command and police who also definitely were not busy planning a coup, and immediately seized power, declaring themselves a provisional government three days later. General Amon, unfortunately, was a moderate and immediately fell out of favour with other generals and was killed in September 1974. He was replaced by Mengistu Haile Mariam, who declared Ethiopia a, a Marxist-Leninist state and abolished the monarchy, and then initiated a brutal purge of all of his opponents. Now, the USSR must have felt like the bell of the ball with both Ethiopia and the EPLF wooing it. but. Seeing that familiar genocidal glint of joy in Mariam's eyes as he butchered between half and three-quarters of a million people, no doubt told them they were making the right choice, backing Ethiopia. 
1975, the USSR ramped up support for the newly communist country, dashing any hope the EPLF might have had of getting Comintern support, and triggering a new and brutal phase of the war. Yes, I am getting to the cardboard shoes, I promise. Now, the flood of Soviet money and the influx of Ethiopian troops should have been bad for the Eritreans, and initially it was, kicking off a new major offensive into the region. But, uh, replacing the autocratic Selassie with the genocidal Derg, the name of the military council who governed Ethiopia, believe it or not, did not calm the situation in Ethiopia. And in 1974, the Ethiopian civil war began. Now, I won't get into the wider Ethiopian civil war, because there were dozens of factions fighting both the Derg and each other for two decades, and kind of still till today. However, needless to say, the wind was fast taken out of the army's sails in its Eritrean campaign. This chaos was fantastic for Eritrea, who between the ELF and EPLF seized 99% of the country between 1974 and 1977. In 1978, it looked like a victory was just around the corner. Somalia had invaded Ethiopia in the Ogaden War, and the rebels in Tigray and Oromia were pushing hard towards the capital. Now, the USSR was supporting both Somalia and Ethiopia at this point. But when Somalia, sensing weakness, invaded in an attempt to create a greater Somalia, forced the Soviets' hand. Gee, it's almost like, it's almost like the struggles in this area had less to do with ideology and more to do with national interest. But whatever. With the USSR pulling away from Somalia, the USA stepped in and shit got real. The ELF and EPLF launched a massive attack against remaining Ethiopian targets and it briefly looked the regime may lose. So in 1978, the Soviets and Cubans orchestrated a massive airlift of men and equipment to stabilize the regime, sending in 13,000 elite Cuban troops, Soviet military advisors, and over a billion dollars of equipment. The war would cost Somalia everything, and would lead to the rapid breakdown of the state and the birth of a four-decade civil war that is still going. I wonder if there's a connection between the brutality of four decades of all-encompassing civil war and the growth of Islamic extremism in the region. Nah, it must be the religion. Where was I? Cardboard shoes? Doesn't sound familiar. Anyway, with the defeat of Somalia, Ethiopia entered a brand new period of brutal repression. Empowered by direct Soviet support, they pushed their opponents to the brink and went on a massive offensive into Eritrea. Between 1978 and 1988, the EPLF was pushed almost completely out of the east of the nation, and the ELF was rapidly driven back to the Sudanese border. It was during this struggle another group would split off from the ELF to form the Eritrean Islamic Jihad movement based in Sudan. So in dire straits, the ELF and EPLF finally, under a lot of internal pressure, buried the hatchet and formed a coalition to fight the Ethiopians. Now, this is one of the areas that Eritrea is interesting in. Eritrea is about two-thirds Christian and one-third Muslim. The ELF were popular among Western Muslims, and the EPLF were popular in the cities and then among Eastern Christians, despite being a Marxist party. It is the hardships that Eritrea undergoes that forces cooperation and leads to an integration of Christians, Muslims, and Marxists into a single revolutionary front. Now, 
In the 1980s, the ELF and EPLF pushed to the far west to dig in and dig in hard. And it is now, after the heady days of the mid-70s, they hit their lowest point, and defeat looks inevitable. The Ethiopians flood the country with troops, about 300,000, while the combined Eritrean forces field about a tenth of that. Virtually all of the Eritrean equipment comes from captured Ethiopian equipment or private donations from Sudan. However, with the birth of Islamic Jihad, much of the Islamic support that has been propping up the ELF disappears, and the EIJM shows little to no interest in working with anybody but themselves. In 1986, pushed to the far west desert of the nation, dug into bunkers and underground field hospitals, the ELF and EPLF have nothing. They are almost out of ammunition, weapons, spare parts, food, even the clothes on their backs are rotting away. The situation is so dire, losing your meagre soap ration becomes a punishable offence. Many soldiers lack shoes. Soldiers sewed their own clothes, cut up old oil drums and cars into everything from hairbrushes to knives to crosses, and it is in the ravages of the desert that they turned to one of their only plentiful resources to maintain themselves. Cardboard. In the underground field hospitals, people started using old surgical tubing to create cardboard sandals, which were better than nothing, and young and injured Eritreans were thrown out into the pitiless desert in nothing but cardboard and plastic to fight the largest army in sub-Saharan Africa. In 1988, with a significant number of soldiers still fighting in cardboard shoes, the Eritreans turn the tides. Capturing the western cities of Karen and Afabet, the Soviet Union in imminent danger of collapse itself pulled all support from Ethiopia in 1989, and between 89 and 91, the Eritreans, after three decades, still fighting alone and almost unassisted against a vastly superior foe, finally pushed the Ethiopian army out of the country in 1991, all on the heels of cardboard shoes. And that is how cardboard shoes, in a small way, helped to win a war. The People's Democratic Republic of Ethiopia, rebranded from the Derg in 1987 but still led by the genocidal Mengitsu Mariam, collapsed in 1991. And you might think Eritrea only got its freedom because Ethiopia collapsed, but believe it or not, Eritrea had pretty much won by 1989. The DPRE had started peace talks in 89 after the withdrawal of the Soviets and had all but surrendered by 1991. The Eritreans even began supporting rebel forces in Ethiopia, becoming a major factor in forcing what was sub-Saharan Africa's most militarised country to its knees, all while still marching in cardboard shoes. In May 1991, now no longer in cardboard shoes, Eritrea, fully independent, sent a delegation to Ethiopia to formally negotiate with the new transitional government, finally walking away with full legal recognition of their right to independence. The EPLF and ELF representatives held an internationally monitored national referendum on independence. 99% voted in favour. So on the 24th of May 1993, Eritrea finally became an internationally recognised independent country. Mariam, the former leader of Ethiopia, fled to Zimbabwe and still lives in exile in Harara, no doubt paying handsomely for their protection. 
As for Isaias Afwerki, well, in 1991, he was made Secretary General of the Provisional Government. The Provisional Government established a National Assembly, a constitution, a legal system, local elections, and all the frameworks for democracy. Then the people elected Afwerki the first President of the Republic of Eritrea. The EPLF was dissolved and rebranded into the People's Front for Democracy and Justice, and is now the sole legal political party of the nation, though only controls half of the seats in the National Assembly. In an interesting move, the ELF were invited to join the New People's Front, many joining and forming the current National Assembly. So, a true democratic success story. Well, it would be. If elections were ever held a second time. Unfortunately, for the past 30 years, there has not been a single national election, and all power is in the hands of Afwerki. However, he's not a traditional autocrat. For starters, his former enemies were invited into the governing party, and the state still celebrates the ELF, even though some members split away to join Islamic Jihad in Sudan. But the weirdest part of his rule is that Eritrea doesn't hold sham elections. They just don't hold any elections. That's just... That's just not done. Every dictatorial state for the last hundred years holds sham elections for domestic propaganda. It's what they do. For his part, Afwerki still promises the eventual move to democracy and all of the elements for a democratic transition are there, they're just not used, leaving him the sole dictator. But it is interesting and unusual that he isn't gaslighting his country like Kim Jong-un with promises like, ooh, we already have elections. As far as it goes, despite taking unilateral control of Eritrea, there has only been one small purge in 2001, when Government Minister Petrov Solomon authored an open letter of dissent to Afwerki. The letter triggered the arrests of 11 ministers and the shuttering of all public papers. But other than that, the situation in the country has been weirdly calm, and the government has not been overly heavily handed since. Maybe the cautionary tale of their neighbours are keeping the government in line, with every group still armed to the teeth. Or maybe Afwerki sees himself as an Ataturk-like figure, setting the country up for democracy. Though he doesn't host sham elections, he has promised elections in the future. In like 30 or 40 years. The annoying reality is no one really knows, and we are out of the realm of history and into the realm of politics. And not much is understood about the internal politics of Eritrea. The country recently opened its borders for tourism, so more will come out in years, and hopefully I will be there to break some of it. But otherwise, things today are fine, right? Well, in 1998, Ethiopia invaded again, except this time they were kind of justified, because Afwerki, having lived through three decades of war, had a look at all the peace around him and was like... Nah. And annexed an Ethiopian border town, kicking off another 20 years of war. Fortunately, the fighting only lasted till 2000, though clashes continued on and off till a peace treaty was signed in 2019. And now the wars are done, right? N no, the poor Eritreans would be dragged into conflicts with Yemen, Djibouti, Sudan, and Ethiopia again. And that is all of Eritrea's neighbours. Today, Eritrea seems to be repairing relations with Ethiopia, provided those Ethiopians are not the Tigray Liberation Front, who Afwerki seems to have a special hatred for, launching an invasion into Tigray rebel areas to support Ethiopia's ongoing war with the breakaway province since 2020. Fortunately, current reports indicate the Eritreans do, in fact, 
have shoes. But believe it or not, it looks like much of Tigre's domestic forces don't. So cardboard shoes might go a long way to winning another war in East Africa. That is all we have time for. Thank you so much for joining me. Feedback can be sent to historicalhysteria at gmail.com and check the socials r slash historicalhysteria on Reddit and at manichistory on Twitter. Before I leave, I'll leave you with this. Tattoos are sometimes said to be the last great social stigmas, which is oddly appropriate as the word stigma comes from the Latin and Greek words for tattoo. In Latin, stigmata and in Greek, stigmatos, meaning to make marks from piercing the skin. Goodbye.